Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's good to be with you back in person again, Ashley, and I'm glad to see that you are healthy and doing well. <laughs> yes, I am feeling much better. If, if anyone listened to our, our Sunday bonus episode, <laughs> I was sounding kind of rough there. Yeah, Ashley finally succumbed to COVID. Yeah, um, no. It was it was a humbling start to my Lent. <laughs> yeah, you, I, you got it like Ash Wednesday, right? Yeah. Oh, man, that's... A little on the nose. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're feeling good? Feeling yeah, better? Yeah, feeling good. Glad to be back in studio. Yeah, feel, it's good. And we got a great show, um, very Lenten themed. Yes, we do. We are talking to Jimin Kang. She is a graduate student at Oxford University, and she wrote this really great op-ed in the New York Times titled, For Lent, I Gave Up English. Yeah, I thought this was fascinating because it's uh, that's like hardcore Lent, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about uh, the unorthodox the unorthodox folks giving us some hardcore stuff like giving up English for Lent and trying to like just like limit yourself to another like other languages that you know hey I don't even like have the ability to do that and so I have mad respect for someone that could even conceivably do this but we get we talked to Jameen about a little bit about what that was experience was like and also kind of the relationship between different languages and faith you know she grew up Catholic in uh, Korean Catholic Church but that was not her strongest language and that impacted her faith in in ways that she's revisiting as an adult someone who's learning new languages fascinating conversation she's way smarter than either of us so I'm <laughs> glad that she graced us with her time yeah and in signs of the times we are going to bring on our colleague Father Jim McDermott to talk about the invalid baptism controversy. And in As One Friend Speaks to Another, you're on tap and we're talking about, uh, I don't know, negative negative thoughts. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I, am I doing Lent right or wrong if yeah. I'm talking about, if I'm focusing on my sinfulness? Yeah. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Look, we all deserve to keep learning, keep improving ourselves, right? That doesn't stop when we're out of school. Maybe maybe that's why you listen to this podcast, because you're trying to learn something new. Not from Ashley or I necessarily, but from the other smart people that we bring on. And that's why The Great Courses has been providing video series presented by top-notch university professors for millions of lifelong learners for over 30 years. The Great Courses has fascinating courses on topics like cognitive behavioral therapy, the Black Death, the American Civil War, and a lot more. And the best way to access these programs and hundreds more from The Great Courses is on Wondrium. We're huge fans of this, right? All the modern convenience of a, a streaming service, but like really smart content and engaging content all rolled into one. Wondrium has a fantastic program that I've been enjoying called How to Speak Effectively in Any Setting, right? Like, so one of these settings that I speak 
often is this podcast, right? And But also Ashley and I are on the road a lot. We're giving talks. We're in meetings throughout our work day. And there are all kinds of things that you can do to give yourself that like extra leg up. And so if you're someone that is, you know, nervous about public speaking or think you're pretty good at it, right, take it to the next level. This is, I highly recommend this course. It's taught by uh, someone at the University of Virginia School of Law. So uh, lawyers, also people that have to speak uh, in front of people a lot. Um, and we love watching this on the Wondrium app. You know, having the flexibility to watch or listen to the content is such a convenient feature. Right now, they're offering our listeners a free 22-day trial of unlimited access to their entire library. This is great for Lent, right? Maybe maybe you gave up Netflix. Maybe you could supplement it with this and like do some like positive things for your brain. You know, I know the new Tiger King or Love is Blind is out, but this is going to be a better way to spend your time. And you can access this offer, these 22 free days, by signing up through our special URL. That's wondrium.com slash jesuitical. You start your free trial today. All you have to do is sign up at wondrium.com slash jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week, we have brought on our colleague, Father Jim McDermott, to talk about the controversy around invalid baptisms. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was really glad to see this uh, kind of deep dive explainer that you did in America um, because this I, I was I was just kind of baffled all around by all sides of this this issue of all of a sudden in the Diocese of Phoenix, a bunch of baptisms were all of a sudden declared, you know, null and void or invalid. Yeah. Um, thousands, actually. Thousands. <laughs> thousands. <laughs> um, and probably other sacraments too as yeah. a result. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just like set the stage, you know, where did this happen? What was, what were the facts on the ground? Sure. So Diocese of Phoenix, uh, there was a priest who had been working in that diocese for 18 years named uh, Father Andres Arango. So the formula, basically when you baptize a child or an adult, you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then that's as you're like pouring the water, right? So he apparently had been saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not knowing there was no like, oh, I've got my own sort of spicy mix on this. This was just like what he thought he was supposed to be saying. And in 2020, the CDF had said, the, Catholic, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that you have to say I. And it was retroactive as well. So that any baptism that had ever been done using we was considered uh, invalid. And this is uh, not the first time this happened. There was a case in in Detroit, I remember, um, from a couple of years ago, where a priest discovered his yeah. own baptism was done using an invalid formula. Exactly. So like, I think he had, there'd been like a whole movie that he had watched of his own baptism and then realized, oh no, it was using we, not I. Yeah. So then his ordination was invalid. So the, so when this comes out, it causes a whole chain of events yeah. um, and a lot of confusion. I'm wondering, you know, when this news came out, what were you hearing from people like just in your life or people you had baptized? Were they calling you like, hey, did you, did you do it right? <laughs> I, I was sort of like suddenly I was getting messages from family actually. And it would always start as like, ha ha ha, isn't this crazy? And I would say, yeah, I don't, what's, what is this? I don't know what's happening here. But then there was sometimes implication like when you baptized your nephew, Jack, yeah. what did you say? Yeah. Well, I, maybe we could put this in context a little bit. Like uh, I, I, why would there have been a priest you know, maybe just like saying we instead of I? Um, because I feel like there is this just general cultural perception that in the years after Vatican II, it was kind of the Wild West and people were experimenting liturgically. Right. So why did, yeah, why did the CDF feel the need to clarify on this? Basically, when 
you baptize a child. It, it, the, the priest is the one doing the baptism, right? Or the deacon. But actually, it's we believe it's Jesus that baptizes children. It's Jesus who welcomes us into the community. So that whoever's doing it, they're doing it sort of in place of Christ. But Christ is the is the one with the power that is actually doing the baptism. Similarly, like when um, in the mass, when uh, the Eucharist is consecrated, you're, you're not saying, you are speaking in the words of Christ, the minister is, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. So the problem in this situation, I think what was going on from interviews that uh, the, uh, Father Arango has given, his sense was like, it's the community that's welcoming the child, right? So it's, which I, I'm sure he would say, obviously, Christ is the, the sort of the head of that community. Included in the royal we. Exactly. Yes. It is this, the first person plural, right? So yeah. it's still. But uh, but the CDF's point was, uh, that's not exactly the same thing. It really just has to be. It's just Christ that's doing it. The community is, of course, welcoming the child. But in terms of the sacrament, it's Jesus who is sort of delivering or producing the sacrament, the blessing. Yeah. So the theology, you explained the theology on this and it's pretty mm. clear cut and you know it is what it is but i want to talk about kind of like the pastoral reality around this because yeah. as you mentioned you, you you were getting calls people were concerned they were confused and so i'm wondering you know how how did the church handle this pastorally in your opinion personally i think it's somewhat frustrating how it's been been handled and i don't mean that the diocese of phoenix phoenix exactly per se i just mean in general from even the cdf's decision and in, in the sense that like in this case, you have you have a priest completely well-intentioned who undoubtedly was thinking that Christ was doing the baptizing, right? But he said one wrong word, and it meant that thousands of people had to have their children rebaptized if they had had First Communion. And this was like over 18 years. So you're talking First Communions, confirmations, could have been a wedding. Also, you know? people could have died. Right, right, exactly. So then when you think about baptism, you know, baptism means many things. And I think one of the things that it means for people is it's sort of a blessing and sort of a protection. Like God is with my child and there's a sense of safety that comes with it. So the sense of sort of like, oh no, that didn't actually happen. It's not just that it's confusing. It's it's sort of upsetting and sort of even frightening. And if for a child, if a parent, if any, if any parent had lost that child, suddenly there are all kinds of questions about, well, what does that mean in terms of my child's salvation or where they are? Like it's, and I don't think in this case or in the other cases that is taken into account quite enough. And pastorally, it's a it's a nightmare. But I'm also like not totally convinced theologically either, particularly because they're like we recognize baptisms uh, from other Christian traditions in, in the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. Like baptism yeah. is something that unites all of us, and it's I don't know that's a bright spot in Christian relations, in my opinion. And you know, for that reason. The words matter a lot, and so I get that. I'm, I'm you know, mm. I, you can't just do whatever you want. For yeah, baptism, right? Like, but I thought we had put a lot of emphasis on it needs to be in the Trinitarian formula, and it needs to be with water. Um, and yeah, I, and you mentioned in your piece there's an Eastern Catholic Church where there's no pronoun used at all, none at all. Right? Yeah. It's it's sort of constructed in the pass, passive voice, or this person is baptized. Yeah. Um. So that I'm just a little confused about in, in the sense that. The CDF, being the Vatican, has the right to declare things valid and invalid. For sure, for sure. I think there could have been a little more theological and canonical imagination because the church also recognizes this idea of baptism by desire, right? Like, yes. if you wanted to get baptized, but something happened before you could and you died, uh, the church yes. recognizes that as you, you, you got baptized. And so I, I just feel like this, le this felt very legalistic to me. Yeah. And if there had been a little more consideration of the pastoral implications 
then we could have avoided a lot of this. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I think in every respect, I, I felt very much. There's also the question of like, obviously the words are important, but there's also that we believe that God is present in this moment, right? Mm-hmm. So if 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 the guy got it wrong, still like his intentions were clearly right, and don't we believe? I mean, the sacrament. If we're saying that it's Jesus that does the baptizing, isn't Jesus Jesus present anyway? Even if if a mistake is made, and I and so for me too, that just and I think that's a big part of the reaction I got from people is like, what are you, what are you saying? What do you mean that that child or these thousands of children weren't baptized? Of course they were, because everyone there experienced it, right? They experienced that that sacrament happened. So for somebody then say fifteen years later to say actually it didn't because of one word, it's just. The thing that I had heard and I've thought about is it's sort of like a magic spell theology. That's not what the CDF is doing, but that's a lot of what it sounds like is it's you got to have all the, the words just right or act or actually poof, it didn't happen. I mean, that's you've got to get the incantation right. Exactly. Exactly. That was like the n- sort of normal person reaction, which is a very normal person reaction yeah. to have. I also feel like this is a, a weird moment in history where we all have access to home videos of our baptisms. That has not been the case. Yes. For 2,000 years of church history. Yeah. And so uh, to, to think that everybody yeah. did it perfect for 2,000 years, yeah. I find to be a little tough to believe. Yeah, because that means a bunch of priests and bishops were not properly ordained and then all the people that they right. <laughs> ordained are not like. And this it, is all if, solved if you just have, like, if you just, like, trust the church's theology and understanding in, in, in a different way. It's not saying to, like, ignore the importance of sacraments or the validity of them or um, to you say none of this actually matters. And as long as we all, you know, think we did the right thing, we did the right thing. It's just, I I, I thought this was a very frustrating case all around. So maybe to, to tie this up, do you think this, we're going to see more of this? What's the way out? I do. I actually think that it's undoubted that we'll see more of this, hopefully not on this scale, but I don't see why it wouldn't be. I mean, I just think, first of all, I would say that, that the baptismal videos is a great point. I would tell everyone maybe today is the day to get rid of your baptismal videos. <laughs> don't look at it because I think you're right. There are doubt, undoubtedly going to be other cases. And, and I think at some point, I think some bishops probably will. They'll hear cases like this and decide quietly, like, just don't do that anymore. Like, you know, and that's what I wish the CDF had done in 2020. It said, look, this isn't how it's supposed to be, so please don't do it anymore. But of course we believe that God has been present and that that the fact that these sacraments, quote unquote, worked is proved by the people that it produced, right? Like we've got all kinds of reasons to say, let's not let's not litigate the past. Let's just do it differently in the future. Thank you for unpacking that for us. The article is Understanding the Invalid Baptism Controversy, A Guide for Catholics. You can find it at americamagazine.org. And we want to hear what you think about all this. So come to our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical and let us know. And now stick around for our conversation with Jimin King. Joining us from Oxford is Jimin Kang. Jimin is a graduate student in comparative literature and critical translation at the University of Oxford. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jimin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, we loved your we loved your essay uh, that you just published in the New York Times. Right, right around Lent gave me some inspiration. Uh, I, I obviously couldn't do what you did, but it was called "I Gave Up English for Lent." And before we get to the the essay itself, wondering if 
you could just uh, explain for our audience uh, what your like languages growing up were like. So I was born in a Korean family, and so we spoke Korean at home. But from the age of four, when my family moved to Hong Kong, English was the primary language that I spoke because I attended English language schools. With my friends, I spoke in English. And at school, because it was in Hong Kong, we also learned Mandarin Chinese. But at a certain point, you know, we, we got to learn a foreign language. I chose Spanish in part because my sister was taking Spanish at the time. I also had a crush on a guy from Chile. But, you know, that's it. <laughs> the real, <laughs> the real reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Portuguese I picked up when I did a gap year in Brazil just Oh, my God. You're just, you, keep, you keep rattling them up. I thought you were done like two languages ago. <laughs> All right. So one more. Listen one more time. Yes. Korean, uh, English, Chinese, Spanish, and Portuguese. Okay, and you're and you would say you're most comfortable in English, uh, growing up, and at this point, that's your that's what you would your go to. So I have to say, as someone who grew up only speaking English, and then you know took Spanish for eight years, and still feel like I've <laughs> learned nothing. I've always been jealous of people who who grow up just like absorbing languages. But in your essay, you talk about some of some of the challenges that come with it, and and the ways that it can you know open up some relationships, but also challenge other relationships. So can you talk about, you know, these different languages in, in first, I guess, in the context of, of your family life? Yeah. So because I grew up speaking in Korean with my family, it's the language that I associate most closely with my parents. Um, and I would say my Korean, I am comfortable speaking it, but, you know, in a home context to ask, you know, what are we having for dinner, to talk about how my day is going, that sort of thing. But when it comes to more academic issues or issues of, say, economics, politics, religion, you know, the big topics, then I would say perhaps I'm more comfortable in English. Although I, I do believe that um, all languages are, you know, equally equipped to express different modes of thought and different kinds of themes. It's just a matter of where you kind of put your attention that determines which languages you use for what. I, um, I'll never forget something that my best friend and roommate in college told me. It was that he, he had a realization while we were there that he and his parents were never going to speak to each other in the language they were both most comfortable in mm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's always stuck with me because I, as someone I you know, ostensibly speak the same language as my first language is my parents, but we, I feel like we miscommunicate all the time. I, I, I had a hard time even like, you know, relating to what that might even be like, how your different relationships to these different languages affected your relationship with your parents. It's something that I think about very often, the more I pursue what I study. Uh, so I, I studied Spanish and Portuguese throughout my undergrad, and now I'm studying comparative literature, but in Portuguese and English. And so whenever I approach my academic work, I often think about how can I you know, frame whatever I'm learning in a way that my mom would understand it. For example, um, my mom doesn't speak Portuguese. She does speak English, but it's, it's not the language that she's most comfortable in. And in that sense, it kind of has me constantly trying to relate parts of myself that are independent from my family back to where I came from, which can be a, a tricky process and not something that everyone, you know, necessarily relates to. But I think it helps keep me humble, I suppose, in, in pursuing especially academia and writing, that sort of thing. Can you give an example of what that looks like I'm very far removed from academia right now so just when you say say that what what would be an example of how you try to incorporate that into your academic work yeah I have a good example so the first term that I was at Oxford the the course that I was doing focused on comparative literatures, but in class, we never actually spoke about how what we were learning related directly to our lived experience. And so that week, I happened to be writing an essay 
in Spanish um, about my relationship with my mom. Um, but the root of it was an experience that we had last summer where we were both reading Don Quixote. Um, I was reading it in an English translation. My mom was reading it in a Korean translation. But the copy that she had happened to be not only a translation, but an adaptation for children. And so it was, you know, my, my copy was very fat and hers was very thin. And, and one, one resultant kind of observation I made was that our, our conceptions of Don Quixote were so different. You know, I was like, I think what he does is actually quite brave. And I, I kind of look up to him in a way, although he is kind of crazy. My mom is like, I don't, I don't see, you know, anything about him that's worthy of, of praise. You know, I think he's just a foolish guy. And I think a lot of what was lost in translation was what was feeding into these different conceptions. And so the essay was just about how, you know, we try and approach different things, but can't fully agree on them together. And kind of my desire to one day be a kind of translator for my mom to convey a lot of what matters to me in a way that she best understands. And that was the essay that I presented for my week um, in class. And I think uh, my classmates um, appreciated that, which was very special. Now, you kind of allude to this in your your essay for The Times that you didn't always like try to make that effort, right, to, to kind mm-hmm. of translate some of these um, these things that you're learning about, that you're dealing with, um, to, to be able to talk to your parents about them. It, it, why, why is that? Or what, what made you like sort of afraid to, to initially do that? I, I think a part of it was just laziness, which is awful. But, you know, I sometimes... You don't strike me as a lazy person. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. mind you, like when I was in America, especially, there was that whole time zone difference when I was calling my parents, and uh, which often meant it was like my morning, their night, or vice versa. And I just remember, you know, calling them was kind of an event. Like a lot of my friends would just be able to pick up the phone and call their parents Mm. or siblings whenever. But for me, I had to kind of plan in advance or or do the math. And oftentimes they were on occasions where I just felt busy and um, just wasn't feeling up to necessarily communicating myself in the best way I could. But another part of it, I think, was just a complex that I had where I just felt like, man, like if I tried, I'd just work myself up and be upset about the fact that I couldn't communicate what I wanted to say. So I might as well not put myself in that emotional situation, um, which obviously uh, wasn't necessarily the most rational thing in the world, but that was how my thinking went for a lot of these occasions. What uh, what got you over the over the hump, I guess? What, like, Because I, I think you're a modest person for attributing it to, to laziness. I think, you know, time zone barriers, language barriers aside, yeah, I, I, I relate to this in some ways as like a first generation college student um, where... I, for a long time, just like separated some of the things I was learning in class or the experiences I was having from the culture I was raised in was like, so I don't think it's exclusive to I, to language and time zones, but what got you over, over the hump? What got me over the hump on one hand, I think was observing how some of my friends talk to their parents. Um, so I'm very lucky in that I have a very positive relationship with my family. And um, I remember when I was living in Brazil, my best friend at the time, she was in Brazil with me. I overheard her talking to her parents on the phone and she spent several minutes describing the color of the sunset. And I remember listening to that conversation being like, that is so wonderful. But I also can't see myself doing that with my parents in Korean just because I don't think I know enough shades of purple, for example, in Korean to describe what that sunset looked like. But, you know, I think observing people kind of make that effort kind of inspired me to do the same. But one pivotal moment, I think my senior year was when I was having an argument with my mom about me potentially getting a nose piercing, which I eventually did, but then got it removed. So effectively, I didn't get one. <laughs> so mom, um, mom won the argument in the end, it seems like. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. It was like divine intervention on part of my mom. But in any case, 
I remember talking to her on the phone and trying to convince her about this nose piercing. And she was like, no, you know, over my dead body, et cetera. And I got very frustrated. And I said, you know, we can argue all we want, but you will always win because we always talk in Korean and that's the language that you're better at. And my mom just stopped and she laughed and she said, you know, it's never been about language. You let me win because you love me too much to let me lose. Um, And that was a moment where I was like, well, she's right. (laughs) She's my mom. And I think part of my inability to express myself in the way I wanted might have just also been a sign of respect to her and deference to her. Um, And that was a big kind of changing point for me. I want to backtrack a little bit to to your time in Hong Kong when you were you were brought up in a Korean Catholic church, and so you were you were going to church. Uh, I I believe this is correct, using the Korean language, learning prayers in Korean. So, can you talk a little bit about how the Korean language shaped your your relationship to the Catholic faith? Yeah. So the Korean language was, you know, I grew up with it, but. Specifically, the weekends were full of Koreanness uh, because Saturdays I would attend the Korean language school, and then either Saturday afternoons I'd go to you know youth group uh, as part of my Catholic church, or on Sundays we'd have service with the adults, um, and all of this was done in Korean. And so I distinctly remember the weekends for me were kind of an exercise in in being Korean and being around other Korean people, and so naturally being a faithful person also fell into that category as well. Um, and because I didn't understand Korean as well as I did uh, English, especially when it came to some of the more ecclesiastical matters, uh, I found myself not being able to connect with the sermons as well as I wanted to. No, I still, I feel like I have a hard time with ecclesiastical terms as a professional Catholic journalist sometimes. So I can totally relate to that. Um, I'm wondering if that, uh, how that changed and developed, you know, your relationship to the Catholicism that you you grew up with as you got older and maybe got either more or less comfortable in Korean. Did you attend Catholic churches in other countries and languages you were more comfortable in? And what was that experience like sort of hearing some of these words again in a new language, in a new context? So I stopped attending church regularly um, towards the end of high school. And I only really returned to faith, I would say, um, in my senior year of college. So that was what, like a four-year gap or so. And that was really inspired by a variety of reasons, um, one of which was the pandemic. I think it was a time when all of us were kind of seeking a sense of direction in an otherwise directionless time. And another was the influence of my close friend who was a daughter of a Presbyterian pastor. And she was really instrumental in kind of allowing me to see faith, not necessarily as um, a dogma or um, something that you have to follow the rules for, but as a system of thought or, or a way of living intentionally. And so because of her, you know, I started attending um, virtual church services in English. And it was really interesting hearing the Lord's Prayer in English for the first time because, you know, I was doing the translation in my head and I was like, aha, like this is the prayer that I would have to <laughs> recite 10 times, you know, after confession when the priest would be like, you know, to forgive you for missing church for someone's birthday party, you have to say the Lord's Prayer 10 times or whatever. Um, so it was nice to return to, to the Korean in that way. But I would say, you know, and then I, I attended her church and here in Oxford, I've been going to the Quaker meeting house and have been to different churches here and there, uh, not necessarily Catholic over the past couple of months. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting to kind of understand what I had grown up learning the whole time, but in a way that actually resonates with me. Yeah. Lingering on that, so how much how much is that related to the the language you were using? So when religion was in Korean, which was not your most comfortable language, it was more like memorizing the prayers. In your childhood, did you feel like it was kind of more ritualistic and recitation? And if and when you talk, 
did you like talk to God? And if you talked to God, was it in English or Korean? <laughs> and did that change when you came to the United States? All the prayers that I had to memorize before my baptism were in Korean. Um, and I remember we had these placemats at home when we ate that had the uh, like the pre-meal prayer, and that was also in Korean. So in that sense, yes, like so much of the prayer uh, praying for me was just this ritual of memorizing the specific words. But over time, you know, I, I think now I've, I've come to pray in English, in part because my conception of God has also changed. Um, whereas I used to kind of think of God as, um, you know, some untouchable deity somewhere in the sky, uh, for example. Um, nowadays, I've come to understand the presence of God as something that you might consider a friend or something that resides in, inside you or the way, you know, the sky looks extra blue on any given day, that sort of thing. In that vein, I kind of it's natural for me to use the language I feel most comfortable kind of talking with a friend in with conversing with uh, with God in prayer. Now, one like contentious issue in the Catholic Church is is uh, this pr- evergreen issue of like language and liturgy. Um, you know, for a very long time, we only used one language, which was Latin, and it was considered a dead language to to do most of our prayer and liturgy in. Um, and a lot one of the arguments against it is well, well, no one understands it. So it's therefore better to do uh, liturgy in the vernacular, which I I find a reasonably compelling opinion. But at the same time, I I do feel like there was something to the Latin masses that I attended where I couldn't understand something where I was able to just kind of like let stuff wash over me and get into a different place where I was either getting like bored by what was being said in English or I was thinking about it too much. What's your what's your take on that? Um, just this idea that we need to like maybe be understanding everything that's happening that we're that we're hearing in front of us. It has reminded me there is a church here in Oxford that does a Latin mass every Sunday and I keep telling myself I'm going to go, but I haven't yet. So that's definitely next on my list. I think there is a, a real beauty to immersing yourself in something you don't fully understand. Um, because for example, even if you don't understand the language, perhaps that will have you focus more on the rituals or, or the people mm-hmm. involved, what they're wearing. Um, and that in itself, I, I, I suppose, could be a different kind of, of faithful practice. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the whole thing about even if you don't speak multiple languages, you can still engage with different languages in, in, in new ways and learn from that. But at the same time, I think the deepest value would come from um, a circumstance where you do have some kind of foundation. Yeah, so I, I, I know that I, I at one point had this idea that, you know, there could be a language that, that, that God preferred or that, you know, was more appropriate to worshiping. Uh, God in, and I've since then tried to to move away from that. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this idea, like that maybe maybe God prefers or is more uh, better worshipped in one language over another. The first thing that comes to mind is a, a concept I learned about. I remember in my freshman year called the Sapir Whorf hypothesis. Uh, it was in a sociolinguistics class, and basically that hypothesis states um, different parts of us are enabled by different languages. Or rather, some languages are more suited to certain goals than others. That's a generalization. But essentially, I think what you were expressing with Latin and the way that people felt about that and religion resonates in a way. Um, but one of my biggest takeaways from that class was the fact that at least my professor really did not like that hypothesis because she thinks that you know every language is equally equipped to express everything. And that is because like all humans are equally equipped to experience the same feelings, go through the same heartbreaks and joys, that sort of thing. Ergo, like all of our languages can can make these things possible. But something else that I think about was the fact that like 
Dante, for example, the Divine Comedy was written in the vernacular. And that's partially the reason why it became so famous because people were like, man, like we were so sick of this like fancy Latin and now here's this guy writing in a language you understand. Well, I mean, even Latin itself was original, like the Vulgate translation of the Bible was like the vulgar language. It took from like the highfalutin Greek and Hebrew into something that everybody spoke. And that, so that that's how Latin started, you know, in some ways. Now, I want to transition a little bit to the the essay where you talk about giving up giving up the language you're most comfortable in. Where did this idea come from of giving up English for Lent? And you write that it it had been a long idea in the, in the in the making, and it took a few years before it finally set in. Yes, yes, um, it came actually from Jhumpa Lahiri's project uh, that she writes about in other words. Um, and basically, what she did was after having established her career writing in English. All of a sudden, um, casually winning a Pulitzer Prize. Just <laughs> exactly. Like, just be like, all right, I've hit the mountaintop. <laughs> right. Time for a new project. Um, she basically abandoned English, you know, for a while and wrote exclusively in Italian, read exclusively in Italian, and then published this book in Italian. So, so what were the rules you set up for yourself for Lent for those who haven't read the essay? Yeah. So that Lent, I everything I did for leisure uh, or for myself, I did in a non-English language. So that included the books I read, the TV I watched, the podcasts I listened to, and the journal entries that I wrote. I made an exception for like conversations with friends and just day-to-day living. I still had to write a thesis. So obviously I, I worked on that. And and yeah, and actually prayer. I, I still prayed in English just because I felt like it was it came most naturally and it would kind of defeat the purpose of connecting with my spirituality if I <laughs> <laughs> was too rigid about Cut it. Cut yourself off. Right. And uh, I am a big believer in cheating on Sunday during Lent. I don't know if you grew up with this or have an opinion on this, but did you give yourself any breaks? Oh my gosh, those Sundays came in super handy. I remember I would I would make lists of stuff I wanted to read on Sundays. My favorite... So you do cheat on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> Thank you. I'm on the East Coast, I'm full of people that have never heard of this and they enrage me and they make it seem like I'm just a terrible person for cheating on Sunday. But it's a sacred no sacredly held process, uh, <laughs> tradition for me. Sorry, I interrupted you. I was just delighted no. to hear that you also also took breaks on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, no. So it was my first time ever practicing Lent. And and my friend was like, you know, on Sundays, you can you can do whatever you want. And I was like, huh, that is a concept. Um, so I'd, like, I'd, I'd listen to my favorite podcast um, on Sundays and just be, like I would physically feel rejuvenated in a way, which uh, 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 on one hand was a great feeling, but on the other hand, I think affirmed the hegemony that English held in my life. So it was also a little bit of an unsettling feeling as well. So can we talk about some of the lessons you you got from this? I imagine there were some some low points where you were all you wanted to do was watch your favorite Netflix show. What did you learn? What openings were there? Um, what did it teach you about your relationships? You know, one of the things I write about in my essay is the idea that languages can have an influence on the relationships we have in our lives. Um, but that isn't necessarily something that I learned during Lent. I think that's something that I kind of knew all my life. Um, one, the revelatory part of, of that um, realization, though, was coming to see language not just as a tool that we use in day-to-day life, but rather as, as a gift or even an entity that we can engage with in a meaningful way. So in my course, we, we read this one Moroccan scholar called Abdel Fattah Kalito, and he uh, has a book in which he you know, he cites someone, he says he can't remember who it was who said this, but this person's, you know, posited, why don't we view ourselves as guests of language? And so configuring new metaphors to to talk about our relationship to language, maybe we could see it as a neighbor, as a friend, as a parent, as a lover, that sort of thing. And 
if we see our relationship to language as a relationship that we have like with people in our lives, then what are some things we could do to actively nurture those relationships? And, and, and so creating that metaphor in my mind, um, I think was the big realization of that Lenten sacrifice um, and one that I've just been thinking about since. I've always been uh, very humbled in my language studies. I feel like it, it introduces a, like a lot of humility in my life. And so I think it's, it's good for me. Um, it doesn't, I, I don't know if I improve very much. But um, that's something I've tried to take from from my own language study and into like my various relationships. Um, but it sounds like you were you, you were learning similar lessons or similar parallels um, in your discoveries about language. Just at the same time, you're sort of reengaging your faith in, in a way. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what what were what were maybe some of the other things like your, that you learned about God during this, this process of, you know, really emptying yourself and giving up some of the, the things you preferred most, uh, in, in, in the ways you could understand them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, an idea I've been developing in my, in my head is finding parallels between diversity of faiths with diversity of language. Um, so, you know, faith and language both exist on continuums within, religion, you have different faith traditions. And within different faith traditions, you might have different denominations like Christianity does. But within these different denominations, you also have entirely different belief systems. Um, And language functions in a similar way where you have, you know, the broad umbrella of language. And within that, you have different languages. But even within those languages, you have incredible diversity. And so kind of bringing those two ideas together, I actually found that it kind of consolidated my, my sense of faith more as someone who you know, had a relationship with faith, but it was a kind of tangential one. And for a time, you know, I think when I when I moved to America and was attending college, um, I was surrounded by a lot of peers who were a bit skeptical of faith. You know, they might have grown up in a faith tradition, but once you kind of get to a college environment where you're on your own, there are some people who kind of like, huh, like, do I really believe in God? That sort of thing. And I think a lot of people kind of have this um, nervousness about committing to a certain belief in a specific deity and certain rules, if you will. But if we consider religion as, as this continuum, like I said, as we do with language, I think you can start breaking the, some of those rules down and kind of engage with the notion that in the same way that I can speak many different languages and feel like I have many different selfhoods in them, I can also encompass many different faith traditions or different ways of viewing faith or God. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like a one size fits all thing, if that makes sense. No, it makes a ton of sense. I feel like that's like a, the more research that comes out about like millennials and Gen Z spiritual practices, this idea of like remixing faith and different traditions is like, it sounds exactly like what you're talking about. So I think it makes a ton of sense. Now, I feel like there's a pervasive myth that you just like, if you didn't learn a language growing up that you, you, you it's too late for everybody listening to this podcast to try again. Would you, uh, what advice would you give to someone who? Is Don't take like, my excuse away from me, Zach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ashley's already written herself off of the obligation to maybe try and learn something new. So what, what would you say someone who's learned several at this point? Oh, well, I think it's never too late to learn a new language. Well, you don't even have to like learn one to fluency. You know, nowadays on the internet, you can find so much stuff. Like on Netflix, you, they have a great international TV show selection. You can watch a TV show from Spain and, you know, start off by maybe watching it with English subtitles. But if you do have some kind of proficiency, switch to Spanish subtitles or even listening to music, um, you know, on YouTube or Spotify, I'm sure you can find music from all over the world. I think it's just important to try and engage um, with different languages, even though you might not speak them. Um, books and translation, how can I forget? Those are also everywhere. And I think there's a growing movement now that to also recognize translators on the covers of books. And I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. So recognizing translators and reading their works could also be a good thing to do. 
All right. So for those of us who cannot just give up English for Lent, there are other practices that we can we can take up to um, dip our toes in these these other language neighborhoods or whatever the <laughs> metaphor is. <laughs> All right. Jameen, thank you so much for joining us and talking about uh, your Lenten practice. I'm sure it will inspire many people. Um, we do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests, uh, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Wow. Okay. Well, I would say perhaps not a specific person, but all parents all diasporic parents who I think raise their children in a country other than the one that they're from, um, where oftentimes they find language and cultural barriers developing between them and their kids and their dogged attempt to try and understand their children anyways, even if sometimes that's not reciprocated. Um, the act of migrating to a different country is already so hard on its own, but um, trying to cross that barrier with your own children, I imagine, is so much harder. So I would say all of them deserve, you know, something akin to canonization. What a great freaking answer. I almost cut you off when you said not a specific person. And <laughs> stupid. Um, no, I think that's really beautiful. So Jimin, thanks so much for, for coming on the show, for your willingness to like share of your own experiences learning language. Um, I, I think our listeners are going to get a lot from this. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really fun. Feeling in my bones. I could feel it in my veins. In the sky, I can feel the winds of change. You live and you learn, and I hope I've seen enough to make something right. Make up for what I The Master of Arts in Sacred Scripture from the Oblate School of Theology fosters a love for God's Word through an in-depth study of the entire Bible. Courses may be taken full-time or part-time, and face-to-face or online. Visit the website for more information. That's ost.edu slash ma-sacred-scripture. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. What do you have this week, Zach? So I I feel like I'm doing pretty good at Lent. I, I, and I want to say that with like some humility because I don't feel like I'm like nailing all of the all of the like practical things, right? Like I, I, I've tried to not complain about work. I've, I've slipped into that a little bit. I've done some things with my smartphone. But I'm still using it more than I should. But I I feel like this is the first Lent where I f- felt like I'm in a much more like contemplative place. And uh, y- given the various liturgies that happen, you know, Ash Wednesday, first Wednesday of Lent, or first Sunday of Lent, I feel like I have been noticing all the ways that I sin and fail, <laughs> and just like throughout the day, little little things where I've been you know impatient or unkind or hurried or a million things and. I was like, okay, is this is this good or bad? And we we're talking to Father Eric about that, and he talked about the thing that comes th- next, right? So, okay, I've noticed these sins, and I've even noticed in myself my reaction to that is either one of them I've had is, well, you haven't gotten any better at this. You are just you are you're still doing the same things that you've always done, and like you're 
development of a as a Christian as a human being has really like just not gone anywhere. But then another voice that I'm hearing is like, well, like you're you're always going to you don't you like you don't need to be perfect. You've already been saved. Like like I will I will continue to work in you. You can you can stop trying to manifest this yourself. And that that counter reaction and trying to discern which voice is which. Uh, is it's sort of where I'm at right now. Lent's a long time, so we'll see. That I, I that was a, my immediate reaction today. I was like, oh, a week from Ash Wednesday was yesterday. I was like, man, we're only one week into this. There's <laughs> still a long way to go. Um, but that's what I've been thinking about. It's like, okay, what do I do with this realization that I am still broken? <laughs> yeah, no, I totally relate to that. I was, I feel like every Lent, I have like the thing I give up publicly, and then like the thing that I like it's between me and God, and like mm-hmm. He knows about it, uh, and it's the probably the more important thing to do. And it feels like it's the same thing every year and mm-hmm. every so yeah, like feeling like nope, haven't really improved much. Um, but I, I don't know. The, I guess the church kind of recognizes that. That's why we have Lent every single year. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, when we we're talking to Father Eric, he was I, I was like thinking. Okay, like, why is it, it's the same? I've been doing this for, you know, 31 years. Well, probably not that long. But, like, the the sin is the same. But also looking back, like, I'm not – that wasn't the only part of me at that time when I was struggling with that a year ago, five years ago. Like You had other stuff going on. I had other things going on. Some of it some, – some of it good. And, like, to, to only focus on on that that failure is is probably not, not what the – the good spirit wants us no, to be doing. I also feel like there can be a, like if there's like one thing that we like struggle with a lot, it can sort of just like cloud our mind and even blind us not only the good things, but the other bad things too, right? right? You could, it's just like, oh, this is the only thing that I'm doing that's that's a sin. And therefore I like got to focus on that and I'm ignoring like the fact that I've been a complete jerk to my sister or something. Um, so I, I totally relate to that too. And I, we're, we are different people, right? And hopefully even have, being able to have this conversation is I think a reflection of growth. Um, but I, I'm just trying to like observe at a critical distance this life, right? Notice the things, try not to do it, but not really uh, beat myself up when it happens. All right, I will get us out of here. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whittacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whittacle. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is recorded in the William J. Loeshert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.